This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 12, recorded on July 14th, 2011. I'm your host, Tim Kripe, along with my co-host, Maureen O'Brien. Welcome, Maureen. Thanks, Tim. It's great to be here. We're both from Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center, but today we are at a special place. We are up in Clinton County, Ohio, at Camp Joy. Camp. This is at the uh, Joy Outdoor Education Center, and annually we have a camp for children with cancer and blood diseases. And today, this week we have teenagers, so lucky us. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. They're all over age 13, and they've most of them have had cancer and been treated or in the middle of treatment or have undergone bone marrow transplantation or immunodeficiencies or have vascular malformations or sickle cell uh, or other hematologic diseases. So it's very pr- much a privilege for us to be here helping out the camp staff and um, participating in the activities and hopefully uh, keeping the kids well through their week experience. We went rafting today and that was a lot of fun on the Little Miami River. This also means that you may have some, we may have some extraneous noises throughout the podcast uh, uh, with kids coming in and out perhaps, but uh, hopefully you can bear with us. So today we're going to be discussing acute lymphoblastic leukemia, primarily the B precursor type, which is the most common type in children. And we have a couple of interesting stories to talk about. Uh, One is uh, regarding a new type of immunotherapy, an antibody-based therapy. And another is looking at uh, a genetic dissection of high-risk samples and what we've been able to learn from those uh, experiments so far. So why don't we start with the outside of the cell, and that's uh, looking at the uh, targeted therapy against cell surface markers. Great. So uh, these are a couple of exciting papers, as I think we've mentioned on a previous podcast, looking more globally at pediatric cancer, that even as we've become much better at curing childhood ALL, we still have a lot of work to do for both high-risk patients when they're newly diagnosed and in the relapse setting of understanding disease better so we can design more effective and novel therapies. So we're going to talk about a few of those things today. To start out, I wanted to talk a little bit about a review paper that actually has come out recently in Experimental Cell Research in May of this year, and it is in uh, volume 317, page 1255, and the authors are uh, Nagerson and Bowerly. And this has led us into a little discussion of a paper that's just coming out in the Journal of Clinical Oncology in the past month, detailing some of the specific results with this novel agent, which is called blinatumumab, which is a bit of a mouthful, but we'll discuss exactly how it works. So um, The names of these new agents are always quite uh, difficult to pronounce. Is there a generic name yet for this one? Uh, no, it doesn't have a generic name yet. I think its name prior to this was MT-103, so Even it has worse. only moved forward <laughs> to getting a, um, a long name. But the name gives you a little clue in the ending in MAB that this is a antibody uh, agent, but is a little bit unique compared to other antibodies that uh, people may know about or used, such like rituximab, which is very commonly used in adult and now pediatric lymphomas, which is targeted.
target against CD20, which is a molecule on the surface of those cells. This is a slightly more complicated antibody that has some unique properties uh, that are very exciting in terms of its activity in both B-cell lymphomas and in B-precursor acute lymphoblastic leukemia, which is certainly of great interest in uh, pediatric oncology. So this is a bispecific or bite antibody, uh, which is the class that's described. And this actually has one arm that binds to the protein on the surface of the cancer cell, which in this case is CD19. And CD19 is a B-cell marker that is expressed in all stages of development of B lymphocytes. So it's not only on B precursor leukemia cells, it's on mature B cells, which is why it can be used in lymphomas, and it's also on normal B cells. So one of the effects of this agent is that it certainly removes normal B cells as well as the leukemic ones, but that can be tolerated. So the antigen, though, is not, like CD20, not on the real early stages of the cell, right? So it doesn't wipe out the stem cell for, for the pluripotent cell that do gives rise to B cells? Probably not, although it is on a much earlier stage of cell than CD20, which is why CD20 has not been a hugely effective target in pre-B ALL. It's only expressed in about 50% of cases, whereas uh, CD19 is pretty much universally expressed. So it does knock out a significant component of um, normal B precursors as well, but certainly unlikely to be on stem cells. Right. So one arm of this antibody is directed at CD19, and the other arm of the antibody is actually directed towards CD3, which is part of the T-cell receptor. And the goal of this, I think the way to think about it most easily, is it brings a physical association and it brings the T-cell close to the cancerous pre-B cell. And part of the T-cell's job is immune surveillance and killing cells that shouldn't be there. So this antibody not only pulls in the cancer cell to the T-cell, but activates the T-cell against that target. So this is kind of a unique way. And it's not just an antibody against CD19, but it's actually bringing the immune system right to where the problem is and trying to activate it. Is and this the first of its kind to reach clinical trials? Do you know? It is. This is sort of the forerunner of this class of draw of antibodies, and there's a lot of excitement about its activity. So, with that as a little bit of the background, um, it's certainly been shown that this uh, agent is able to back activate T cells at very low concentration, um, indicating that it mimics what the normal interaction of your immune system with the T-cell should be. The receptors that T-cells are normally binding are called MH3 class 1, and this kind of mimics that um, effect very well. Let's go on to a little bit more about what's been done with this, both in the laboratory and then some of the um, activity that's been shown in people. One of the challenges of this drug or antibody is that it has a very short half-life in the bloodstream, which is about two to three hours, meaning if you put the dose in, it rapidly is eliminated. And therefore, in order to achieve ongoing activity of the immune system against the cancer cells, you need to have a continuous infusion. So if it has such a short half-life, you know, most antibodies are well known to have long half-lives. We don't have to administer them more than usually once every two weeks or a month. So what's so different about this one that gives it a short half-life? I don't think it's entirely known, although it's postulated that the size of the this actually uh, antibody conjugate is only 55 kilodaltons. So in terms of renal filtering and excretion, it just goes through the kidneys and is urinated out extremely quickly. So I think it's mostly related to size. Okay. So in order to get around of that, one of the challenges is to administer this agent 
um, requires pretty much a continuous intravenous infusion, usually over a four-week period, done by uh, a mini pump, which you carry around in a little backpack or purse that comes along with it. So in the studies that have been done in adults, the first few days to week, the patients are in the hospital receiving the antibody to make sure that it's well tolerated and thereafter are outpatients, but wearing essentially this pump, which is continuously infusing the drug. So a couple other little uh, interesting pieces of information about this antibody and its activity is that uh, the T-cells are only activated by blinatumumab or other bite antibodies when the target cell, i.e., in this case, the pre-BALL cell, is presenting the antibody to T-cells. So if the B-cell compartment is depleted and you put in the antibody, there is no T-cell activation. So you only get the um, immune response where people have fevers or don't feel well early on, and then as the target is cleared away, um, people don't have any symptoms. So it's very well tolerated overall, and it's been pretty well documented the mechanism by which it seems to kill the cells, which is by apoptosis, and it's been shown that it causes T-cell activation, um, upregulates perforin, which causes the cells to uh, start to, to die. So uh, in vitro, seems to be very effective. So we've gone on now and started to look at this in patients, and this really started in 2008 in adult patients with B-cell-derived non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the updated results from those studies were presented in at the 2010 uh, American Society of Hematology annual meeting, describing 62 patients that were adults that had had stage 3 or 4 non-Hodgkin's lymphoma of the B-cell variety, and this included patients with mantle cell lymphoma, follicular lymphoma, those two are are, uh, really adult diseases, and then diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, which we do see in uh, children and adolescents. And um, they administered the drug and dose escalated up to uh, 60 micrograms per meter squared per day, which is the recommended dose now for treating patients with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they found an overall response rate of 82%, or 18 out of 22, across all different types of B-cell-derived lymphomas. They pretty well characterized the majority of clinical adverse events, which generally were things you might expect when using immune-based therapy, um, where the patients had flu-like symptoms, so fevers, headache, fatigue. Uh, there were a few laboratory changes noted where people had low white blood cell counts, uh, particularly lymphopenia sometimes white blood cell count across the board went down, but generally was very well tolerated with only transient changes in laboratory values. So this actually was very exciting in that it seemed to have significant efficacy and was overall well tolerated. There was one unique side effect that was noted, which is not currently extremely well understood, which was some reversible central nervous system events at the onset of treatment, which encouraged, which excuse me, included tremor, some confusion or disorientation. When that occurred, it disappeared with interrupting the, the infusion of the drug, and some patients were able to restart on a lower dose. So that's something that's being watched for closely. Any idea of the mechanism of that? No. Whether there's cross-reactivity, there's not a lot of penetration of this antibody across the blood-brain barrier, so it's not very good for treating CNS disease. So what it's actually doing on the neurologic level is not well understood. They did observe that patients who had a very high peripheral B to T cell ratio had a very low incidence of CNS events, suggesting that the drug was being sopped up by the B cell compartment in the periphery. But what exactly it was doing neurologically, no one uh, is entirely sure, but that's being in 
investigated greatly going forward. So after starting out looking at this in lymphoma patients, the next step was to say, what about in B precursor ALL? So this has been done in a cohort of adult patients, and this was actually very recently published in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, June 20th, 2011, uh, with the uh, first author being Max Topp, T-O-P-P, volume 29, and uh, the uh, um, title being Targeted Therapy with the T-Cell Engaging Antibody Blinatumumab of Chemotherapy Refractory Minimal Residual Disease in B-Lineage Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia Patients Results in High Response Rate and Prolonged Leukemia-Free Survival. So this was really the first attempt to use this in pre-BALL. And I will say that, to preface this, this was a study in adult patients who had been treated for pre-BALL and had either never achieved what is what we call an MRD, or minimal um, residual disease response status. They were never negative, or they had uh, become negative and then had detection of that disease again. And so we're talking about patients who don't look like they are frankly relapsed, but whom with specialized testing via PCR or other methodology can detect very low levels of disease. And the reason that this is becoming a very important issue in pre-BALL is we understand that achieving an MRD negative state, particularly for patients going into bone marrow transplant, is very predictive for outcome. And MRD being minimal residual disease. Exactly. So that first step of using this antibody was, can we use it to eradicate minimal residual disease in patients for whom conventional chemotherapy drugs and other targeted agents, for example, patients with Philadelphia chromosome ALL were included in this study, who had been treated with imatinib or dasatinib, other tyrosine kinase inhibitors, and were unable to achieve an MRD negative state, which has a very uh, poor long-term prognosis and a very high rate of relapse. So that was their first test of doing this. So the patients in this study, this was an open-label, multi-center, single-arm, phase 2 trial. Patients had to have a minimal residual disease load of 10 to the minus 4th or greater. They had to be off any other uh, chemotherapy agent for 4 weeks and 6 weeks for any kind of monoclonal antibody to make sure that any effects that they were going to be seeing were related to blinatumumab and not to cross over from some other um, agent. And notably, they couldn't have any CNS involvement or pathology going into the study, and this was because they really wanted to be able to monitor people closely for CNS side effects, or uh, central nervous system side effects, excuse me. So the primary objective was to determine the efficacy, and this was going to be by the minimal residual disease response rate. And the secondary objectives were to look at tolerability, pharmacokinetics, and to understand the pharmacodynamics. So patients received a continuous infusion of 15 micrograms per meter squared uh, over four weeks, and then they had two weeks off, and that was a six-week treatment cycle. Patients had to have their MRD, their minimal residual disease, assessed within 14 days of starting treatment and then at the end of each cycle. And that had to be confirmed on two separate bone marrow aspirates two weeks apart to document response to really make sure that it wasn't a function of the sensitivity of the minimal res residual disease testing that was done. 21 patients were enrolled and 20 of them were valuable for response, of whom notably 15 had never had a molecular remission. They had never been MRD negative at any point in their therapy. An MRD conversion from positive to negative was achieved in 16 of 20 evaluable patients after one cycle of treatment. So they had a response rate of 80% in patients who couldn't clear their MRD with anything else. And interestingly, it all happened after one cycle. So the patients who did not clear their MRD with one cycle of this drug, it did not work with giving multiple cycles, didn't add anything into it. And interestingly, 
so breaking down the patient subgroups, 13 of the 15 patients who had uh, pre-BALL without having BCR able or other known uh, negative genetic factors responded. But three of five patients who had BCR able positive ALL responded. And uh, an additional patient had an MLL rearrangement, which is also known to be a negative prognostic factor. So it was effective in a variety of different pre-BALL subtypes. In terms of longer-term follow-up, there's not quite as long as you would want. The median observation time was 405 days, so a little bit over a year, a year and a couple of months. Uh, 16 of the 20 patients eligible for follow-up are in ongoing hematologic remission. So eight went on to transplant and and remain in first remission. Seven did not have further therapy after getting three or four cycles of blinitumumab, and four of those actually remain MRD negative for a prolonged period of time. So this is exciting from the standpoint of getting patients ready and able to go to transplant um, who otherwise would have had a very poor outcome. The long-term effect of how they've done after transplant still remains to be seen. I think one thing that's very interesting about this study is of the four patients who relapsed, they all relapsed due to mechanisms that are easily explained by escaping this antibody. So two, the two of patients who had bone marrow relapses, the cells that came back were CD19 negative. That's always the worry about targeted therapy, of course, that the target will disappear and the, and exactly. the cell won't need that target anymore. Exactly. So that is certainly an issue. And then two patients actually had extramedullary relapses, one in the spinal fluid and one in the uh, testes, which certainly are sanctuary sites that might not be reached in any adequate concentration by such an antibody. So that wasn't terribly surprising. And those patients cleared their bone marrow of MRD and remained negative, but had relapses in other sites. So do we know if uh, giving this antibody into the spinal fluid through a lumbar puncture might be feasible? I don't know that that has been done at any point. There is some plan going forward of giving intrathecal therapy like we typically give for treatment of ALL in conjunction with the antibody, but I don't think there's any data known about the safety of giving it as an intrathecal agent at this time. Certainly, there is data by giving rituximab in such a fashion, so that may be something down the road, but... um, hard to know at this point. And you might have said this, but Mm -hmm. uh, um, did patients continue to get more cycles if they responded? And what determined how many cycles and so forth? Yeah, they, the patients were allowed to be on study and I believe get four cycles if they were continuing to respond, at which point they went off. And the other patients who were not responders, the four out of 20, they had stable MRD, so they continued. You only had to go off if you had rising MRD, so nobody had to stop early. But for those that had stable, they stayed stable. They didn't increase. And do we know if those four are needed or is one enough? Um, I don't know that we know that four are needed. I think most of the patients who had a donor went off sooner for transplant and did not complete the four cycles because really the goal of this was not to see if this would eradicate disease long term, but could this get patients into a state at which uh, they would be suitable candidates for transplant. Sure. So especially since three or four of the seven who three, excuse me, three of the seven who had responded once they went off relapsed again certainly raises the concern that this in and of itself is not a curative option. But no single agent is. Exactly, exactly. And we've certainly found that with many other drugs. So, um, but this is exciting in the standpoint that these patients have had disease resistant to all of our other sort of known and commonly used cytotoxic agents. Yeah, it sounds like an amazing response. Yes. So they did monitor peripheral blood um, lymphocyte populations in these patients to see what happened. And very rapidly, within hours of starting the infusion, 
the circulating B cells become undetectable in the peripheral blood, uh, which includes both the malignant and uh, the normal uh, B cells, because these patients have very low levels of disease, so those are normal B cells. So one of the things to keep in mind with these kind of agents, which is a problem with rituximab as well, is depleting the B cell compartment of making normal antibodies. Um, so infectious risks and need to replace patients with IVIG may become um, uh, an issue with therapy, but certainly there's something to monitor. And the other things that they found were that it really actually stimulates the uh, proportion of memory and effector T cells, which are actually expanded as they activate them by the antibody. So toxicity-wise, overall, was uh, fairly well tolerated, similar to the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patient group in which most of the adverse events were flu-like symptoms. And in this uh, study, one adult had a grade three seizure, which was fully reversible within one day after stopping the infusion, but there were no other neurologic side effects at all like those seen in the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma patients. So it's a little bit interesting. The dose is different. It's about a fourth of the dose. Uh, using non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so whether that is relevant or not, hard to know. So what's the data in pediatrics? Well, there's not much out there quite yet, but hopefully that's going to change. Um, it published in uh, Leukemia in uh, 2011, very recently in the last few months, uh, the first author being Hand Grettinger, and this was in volume 25, page 181. And the uh, article was entitled, Complete Remission After Blinitumumab-Induced Donor T-Cell Activation in Three Pediatric Patients with Post-Transplant Relapsed Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia. So these were performed in Germany, where the company that originally um, has produced this antibody uh, is located and uh, gave compassionate use of this agent for three pediatric patients with multiply relapsed pre-BALL who were all post uh, allogeneic bone marrow transplant and it had recurrence, and all three of those patients uh, had subsequent remissions with this as a single agent. So that certainly has piqued the interest, and going forward, there's going to be a study opening internationally, actually combining the experience of the German uh, pediatric BFM group with the children's oncology group and having a phase 1-2 study of blinitumumab in pediatric relapsed pre-BALL, hopefully to open in the next few months. So it's an exciting time for this uh, novel agent, and it'll be interesting to see how it plays out in the pediatric population. Are they going to be able to start at a similar dose to what they have in adults? Yes, I believe the, the goal is to start at the very close to the adult dose and, and or rapidly achieve it. Uh, final protocol hopefully will be out soon. Yeah, that sounds very exciting, a whole novel arena and just the beginning, hopefully, of a number, a uh, whole pipeline of similar kinds of agents uh, that I'm sure could be developed against uh, cell surface targets. Of course, uh, one has to pick a target that's stable, relatively stable and required by the cell and that it effectively engages the T cell, but it cer certainly sounds like this is a, a great example of one that could impact pediatric ALL in the future. Why don't we move to the next paper, uh, which really we're kind of moving from the outside of the cell to the inside of the cell. And uh, I wanted to talk about a couple of publications in the recent literature that involve the target program of the National Cancer Institute. It stands for Therapeutically Applicable Research to Generate Effective Treatments Target. And actually, Dr. Greg Riemann mentioned that in TWIPO episode number two with his involvement in that program. And it's uh, come from the National Cancer Institute, but involves many other sites around the country, 
that are experts in uh, collecting and analyzing, performing genetic analyses in, in acute lymphoblastic leukemia cells. And there have been two publications recently, one uh, late last year that uh, emanated from this program, and another that's just coming out this summer was a listed investigator from St. Jude, the National Cancer Institute, New York University, University of Florida, UCSF, George Washington, Medical College of Wisconsin, uh, Cook Children's Hospital, University of Colorado. So a lot of different investigators involved in this study, mainly those from the Children's Oncology Group. And they analyzed samples that had been collected on the COG protocol P9906. Can you tell me a little bit about what that study was? Sure. That was the um, pediatric oncology group right before the merger to become COG, the last high-risk pre-BALL study. So that was patients who had white counts over 50,000 or were aged greater than 10 years uh, in terms of their presentation and um, was a less intensive regimen than most of the uh, CCG protocols on which our current ALL therapy is now based, but was one of the first um, studies that had significant samples banked, both for minimal residual disease and for long-term genomic analysis. So it's provided a lot of data of trying to understand the high-risk ALL subgroup and how there are many, many different subgroups within that sort of catch-all phrase and help us find ways to treat them more uniquely. Yeah, so the initial analysis that they published in Blood in 2010, uh, volume 116, page 4874, and first author is uh, Richard Harvey, but again, m authors from many different institutions, Cheryl Willman being the senior author from the University of New Mexico in Albuquerque, entitled Identification of Novel Cluster Groups in Pediatric High-Risk B Precursor Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia with Gene Expression Profiling, colon, correlation with genome-wide DNA copy number alterations, clinical characteristics, and outcomes. And what they did in that paper was uh, did a number of different sophisticated analyses of uh, gene expression data and were able to subdivide the high-risk patients uh, into eight different clusters. And amazingly, within that high-risk group, which overall uh, most of those patients do not do so well, they were able to identify some subsets that actually did quite well. So one of the subsets, which was in this so-called risk group six, had greater than 90% survival at five years, whereas their worst subgroup, which was subgroup eight, had a very poor survival, somewhere on the order of 10 to 15% in a four-year survival, and it looked like most patients had not made it to five years. So the other subgroups were somewhere in between, but it's amazing to me that you could take this group of patients who already were known to be quite high risk from all of the standard features, like you mentioned, high white count and age and, and some of the genetic factors, and really still separate and tease those cases out into uh, further refined subgroups that are quite different. And this is how ALL therapy has advanced over the years is to identify high risk patients and be able to stratify therapy and basically have risk-adapted therapy. So it looks like we can do that even further with the risk groups, um, even amongst the high-risk patients. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, and it's an exciting sort of jumping-off point to figure out subgroups that can receive therapy that is currently beginning less intensive, like standard risk patients are getting, and other subgroups for whom we need to really study their the genetics of their leukemia, which is what's going to lead into the paper that Tim's going to talk about next, to try to find new targets for those patients who are clearly not serving well enough with the drugs that we have right now.
Right, so in the next follow-up paper, which was published online just last month, June um, 16th, and is yet to be in, in print version, uh, with the first author of Jing Hu Zhang, Z-H-A-N-G, in blood, uh, it was entitled, Key Pathways Are Frequently Mutated in High-Risk Childhood Acute Lymphoblastic Leukemia, a report from the Children's Oncology Group. So in this paper, they did a, a deeper dive into the genetics of the high-risk patients. And interestingly, this was sort of a separate analysis from the one they had done previously, but the two analyses actually lined up a bit. So here they took candidate genes, genes that they felt were likely to be involved in cancer, uh, in leukemia generation, so they took 120 such genes and sequenced them, basically all the exons and some of the surrounding sequences as well, to find uh, point mutations or small deletions or insertions uh, and figure out whether or not each of these genes was actually mutated or not in uh, these high-risk patients. So they had 187 high-risk B precursor ALL patients from that COG study, the P9906. Uh, now this study did not include those with favorable cytogenetics that had already been known uh, to give a, a more favorable prognosis like ETV6, RUNCS1 translocation, or trisomy 4 and trisomy 10, unless those patients had other clinical features that made them high risk like CNS or testicular uh, leukemia. So there were three such patients in that study and one of them was included in this uh, set of uh, data. It did have high-risk patients except those who were known uh, why they were high-risk, such as BCR able positive or hypodiploid patients, and it also excluded patients that uh, infants less than one or those who did not achieve remission after four to six weeks. So there's still going to be subsets of patients here that, you know, don't do so well that aren't included or represented in this data set that may have other genetic features that weren't identified here. And, and so that's another uh, group that needs yet to be studied. And for those of you who want to know a lot more about this target project or to look at the actual data that's available publicly, you can log on to the website target.cancer.gov, no www, uh, and there's a lot of information there about this data set. So of those 120 genes that they sequenced, uh, they actually had to sequence 2,196 amplicons, so that means different exons and different areas of the of the DNA, and they sequenced them in both directions, and it generated over 50 uh, million bytes of sequence, and uh, they actually found 147,625 variants of the genetic code, um, but they had to actually parse through that and figure out what was real and what really was unsignificant. So they removed things like silent DNA variations that wouldn't change a codon, or they removed non-coding regions, so if it's not going to change a protein uh, activity. They also had a lot of known inherited variants that were kind of SNPs that just tracked through families and didn't seem to be related to cancer, so they got rid of those. Actually, they parsed it down to 680 novel non-silent variants, and of those, they resequenced those in the leukemic samples and in the remission samples to confirm that they were there and to determine uh, also if these genetic mutations were present in a patient's germline. In other words, were they part of their whole, all of their DNA, or was it something that was just specific to the leukemia cells? And they found that actually most of them were in the germline, uh, were not specific to the leukemia cells. So 395 of those were in the germline. And 179 were found to be just somatic mutations, meaning they occurred only in the leukemic cells in that given patient. Uh, they couldn't confirm 42 of them, and then in 64, 
they couldn't tell if it was normal in the normal sample or the germline or not. So they had to eliminate some of these. Uh, and so they combined a lot of this data that they had previously found with genome-wide copy number uh, variations and gene expression profiles with these 179 mutations. And they were really able to uh, find that there was a high frequency of alterations or mutations in genes in, in 31 specific genes in this subset. So we're really getting down to a pretty small number of genes. And 19 of those 31 were recurrently mutated in at least two different patients. And the most frequent were in the RAS pathway. So NRAS and KRAS were frequently mutated. PAX5, which is a known uh, transcription factor development uh, in the development of B cells, was frequently mutated. And JAK2, which had, in their previously an analysis, the Janus kinases, which are signal transduction proteins uh, within the cell had been found to be uh, mutated. So each of those four genes, the NRAS, KRAS, PAX5, and JAK2, were found in greater than 10% of the leukemias. Many of the others could be classified actually into uh, four distinct groups of genes. One, not surprisingly, was genes involved in B cell development or B cell differentiation. 68% of the leukemias had defects or mutations in that category which is not surprising at all. But there were other, some surprising things. The RAS uh, signaling, as I mentioned, was present in 50% uh, of the cases had a mutated RAS protein or somewhere along the RAS pathway. And that's, RAS has not really been thought to be a big player in leukemia, so that may be something new. There's a lot of interest in RAS pathway in myeloid leukemias, certainly, and in uh, JMML and others, but in lymphoid leukemias, that's not been uh, as big of a target. So that's kind of a unique place to look. And then P53 and RB, the retinoblastoma protein, and P53, obviously a well-known uh, gene that is involved in apoptosis and in, uh, best known as guardian of the, of the genome, uh, they actually found a fair number of mutations in, in one of these two pathways. And most of those that regulated the RB were, were not actually RB mutations like you find in retinoblastoma or osteosarcoma, but they were in genes that regulate RB, such as the, the um, cyclin D-dependent kinase genes, CDK, N2A, and 2B. And then the Janus kinases were in 11% of the cells mutated. Interestingly, you know, they also took a bunch of uh, genes that are known tyrosine kinase genes involved in other kinds of cancers, and especially those that are known to be expressed in lymphoid cells, most of those were not mutated. So they looked at 17 different ones of those, and 13 of them were all normal in all the cells. So the tyrosine kinase didn't seem to play a huge role, and that's tyrosine kinases, as you know, is one of the uh, most highly targeted type of protein. It's relatively easy to make inhibitors against those enzymes, and that's what the Gleevec is against the BCR-ABLE protein. So that was quite interesting. Overall, the frequency of mutations, somatic mutations, was fairly low. So on average, only, there was only one uh, per leukemia, leukemia type, uh, and there was on average 8.36 copy number abnormalities. Uh, so it was more common to have too few or too many of a given gene in a, in a leukemia rather than a mutation. And they also did an interesting calculation where they were able to calculate the background mutational rate overall per base pair. And they calculated it in these, this sample set to be 4.6 times 10 to the minus 7th. So on average, uh, that says that DNA can divide 46 million times, and only once then will it make a mistake at a given base pair. But that rate turns out to be 10 times lower than 
in some of adult cancers that have been looked at. So they had done the same exact analysis on a, a brain tumor cohort. They've also done analyses on a medulloblastoma in, in pediatric patients, which was also 10, 5 to 10 times lower than the, that reported for solid tumors. So they're kind of saying that, you know, these mutations may be more significant, the ones we do find, uh, because there's just a lower background rate of things happening by chance. It would be interesting to know what that rate was in a population of adult ALL patients because, you know, a big area of interest is um, in the adolescent young adult population and trying to bring pediatric therapies to adults and how much of the fact that kids do better with ALL than adults is because they're kids and they tolerate the drugs and how much of it is really because fundamentally on a genomic level they're, they're just totally different in terms of what the driving mutations actually are. Yeah, that would be fascinating. I'm Probably it's going to be a bit of both, but yeah, um, I don't. They didn't mention any data about that. I'm not aware of any uh, similar analyses in an adult ALL population. Another interesting feature is that some of the pathways had multiple hits within the same pathway. So despite this low overall mutation rate, there were some pathways that got hit multiple times. So the chances of that happening would be very rare, and so that tells you that that pathway is really important in that leukemia. Yeah. Now, mostly this happened in the RAS pathway. So there were cases where NRAS and KRAS in the same cells seemed to be mutated, or FLT3 and NRAS, or FLT3 and PTPN11, which is, uh, helps regulate the RAS pathway. Uh, so it was quite interesting. And in fact, some cases even had two mutations within the same gene, like the KRAS gene hmm. or the NRAS gene. So that really tells you that there's a really strong selection for mutation in these pathways. And interestingly enough, as I mentioned at the beginning, this whole analysis, this genetic analysis, was done independently from the previous one that they had published, but it correlated quite well. So in those different eight clusters of uh, high-risk patients that had been defined and published, they call the ROSE clusters in the uh, um, previous paper, each of those was also seemed to have different types of genetic abnormalities and basically different frequency of mutations within these four major pathways. So, for example, and actually in this paper, if people are interested, they could go through and look at all, you know, what the differences is, uh, one through eight. But just to give you an example, the first two clusters hardly had any of these somatic mutations, only five of 17 cases in, in the first cluster and five of 22 in the other, whereas uh, there was a very high rate of mutations in, in a number of the other clusters. Particularly interesting, I think, are comparing cluster six and eight because those are the two that we said in the previous paper, cluster six was a very favorable outcome, whereas cluster eight was a very unfavorable outcome. So cluster six actually had a lot of RAS pathway mutations. 62% of the cases had a RAS pathway mutation, and most of those were coupled with a deletion in the ERG gene, the ERG gene. And rarely, if any, in those cases was there mutations in the B cell development or differentiation pathway or the JAK pathway. But that's quite different from the cluster number eight, which actually showed uh, a BCR-ABLE-like profile. So although patients with BCR-ABLE translocation, uh, the Philadelphia chromosome, were excluded from this study, uh, the high-risk patients that didn't have that translocation showed a gene expression profile that was very similar to those. But they had a high rate of the B-cell development or differentiation gene, so 96% of those cases had genetic defects in there. And there was a high JAK uh, mutation rate as well. So 57% of the cases had a Janus kinase mutation. But there were very few uh, in the RAS pathway, so only 9%. Incidentally, that group also had a high frequency of the 
IKZF1 gene, which encodes Icarus, and had been already known to be a high-risk feature. And there was another uh, cytokine receptor gene, CRLF2, that was rearranged a lot in this group. It was already known. I think it's really interesting. It gives you a window into some of these um, high-risk ALLs that look otherwise like each other. The, it doesn't surprise me at all that the R1 group, which had MLL translocations, which is a very potent uh, leukemic-inducing chromosomal translocation in and of itself, that those cells haven't had to accumulate other kinds of mutations in order to become malignant. So they don't show a lot of other somatic mutations because they're just driven by MLL. But these other groups, particularly these really poor outcome groups, seem to have multiple pathways that are all affected and converging on this kind of negative phenotype. And the question really then becomes, um, in terms of targeted agents, what in that group can we go after? And right now there certainly is a JAK2 inhibitor that is in study for pre-BALL and maybe particularly effective um, at least that would be the group that you would want to try. Right, absolutely. I uh, certainly think the goal of all this is not only to understand how these leukemias develop and what's important in, in their regulation, but also to identify targets. And Jack is going to be an, an obvious candidate target for these high-risk group. Whereas RAS actually, you know, is something that's being targeted in a lot of other cancers, but only 9% of this high very high-risk group, this eight, R8 cluster, had RAS mutations. So those were more common in this more favorable group. And so targeting that, you know, it still certainly may help some patients who don't don't make it in the favorable group, but maybe it's not going to be as big a payoff as targeting some of these other gene products that are in the higher risk group. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there's a lot of data in this study and categorizing things into different groups and making generalizations is, is somewhat difficult and each patient is different. And in fact, there were a lot of other recurrent point mutations in other genes, um, such as ETV6 is one that, that stood out. And in fact, if you add up the, the number of mutations they found with copy number uh, abnormalities that they had already discovered, to actually 12% of leukemias had a loss of function of the ETV6. And you know, these were most, all but one of them were not the ones that had the known translocation because those ETV6 Bronx 1 patients were Not excluded, included, right? Yeah. And a lot of the other genes that they found were involved in chromatin modulation, suggesting that epigenetic changes might also play a role in leukemogenesis, not just frank genetic changes. And there's certainly a lot of ongoing efforts now to target epigenetic changes in cancer. So that might be another avenue for targeting these high-risk patients. Uh, there were a couple things they said, just to conclude, that there were some notable differences with T-cell ALL. For example, the overall 50% mutation frequency in the RAS pathway is higher than what's been reported in T-cell, where it's less than 10%. Another example was that P10 mutations, which uh, regulates the PI3 kinase AKT pathway, those are pretty common in T-cell, like 25 to 35%, but none were found in this cohort of patients. So it doesn't look like P10 or PI3 kinase signaling is really that important in the B-cell precursor ALL. There's a couple caveats that they mention. One, they did not sequence every gene in all of these pathways. So these data really represent a minimum estimate of the pathway mutation rates. And so it may be that uh, as we look deeper and deeper into these genetic pathways that uh, we'll find even more percentages of these cells that have these same pathways mutated. Another caveat is they only sequenced candidate genes that they thought might be involved. And that really only represents a small fraction of the whole coding genome. So there are likely other genes and pathways that might be commonly mutated in pediatric ALL. Another thing they didn't really talk about, but uh, that 
might be reasonable to think about is they didn't look at microRNA expression or protein expression. So it's possible that there are some uh, microRNAs that are altered that alter the expression of certain genes in certain pathways and therefore alter the protein expression. Uh, and uh, the, without that wouldn't be picked up by just looking at uh, genetic mutations. But nevertheless, uh, as you mentioned, uh, this study suggests that there may be a, a number of different new therapeutic targets for this high-risk subgroup of patients. And I think this paper also really highlights the both the promise of these kind of genomic sequencing technologies to identify all these new mutations and really understand these leukemias and the challenge of just the huge volume of data that they had to sift through finding out which of these mutations were really not just passengers that were kind of hanging along and were in the germline. And imagine doing that on a much grander scale because this is such a fraction of the genome. Yes. So trying to figure out amongst all of those what are really the relevant targets down the road is going to be um, a difficult task, but the technology is exciting that it's it's coming into age to be able to do it. Yeah, I think we finally have the tools that uh, and the bioinformatics know-how that we can start um, really analyzing these and hopefully putting them to good use in terms of new therapies. But as this paper illustrates, it takes a lot of people, a lot of different institutions, a whole major effort with a lot of funding in order to just carve out this little piece that, that they've mm -hmm. been able to accomplish so far. Absolutely. And the generous contribution of patients and families who enrolled on this trial and had their cells banked for this, you know, more than 10 years ago when no one knew this was really even going to be possible, but now it is. Yeah, that's a great point. We as scientists always appreciate and honor the patients who do donate their samples and allow us to further the field. So I think these were both very exciting topics. I hope our audience enjoyed them. If you have any questions or comments about what we talked about, please don't hesitate to email us uh, at TWIPO, that's T-W-I-P-O, at solvingkidscancer.org. And I would like to thank Donna Ludwinski, our executive producer, and Pat Buckley, our creative consultant, as also Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. They've been very instrumental in helping us uh, keep this podcast going. So remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.